The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is the fifth day of our winter seven-day session, uh, 3rd of July 2019, and we're going to continue reading from uh, the path to Bodhidharma, the teachings of Shodo Harada Roshi. And we've been looking at Bodhidharma's outline of practice. We were we're looking at um, second of the four practices um, that encompass entering through practice, accepting circumstances. And there was just one uh, last paragraph of this before we move on to the next one, um, craving nothing. Remember, as Bodhidharma tells us, living beings have no fixed self and are entirely shaped by the impact of circumstances. We have to perceive this Buddha nature clearly, doing our zazen with this in mind, and not as if we are stuck in a dark hole. Do your zazen for all humanity, for all of those people who are not yet enlightened, sit firmly. Do not breathe in a dark hole, but burst through the entire universe with your energy. Crash through the heavens with your feet at the roots of the trees, and then bring that life forth. Express that life. There is nothing that needs to be forced or produced. There is nothing to think about and then bring up. Put everything into it. Do not leave anything undone and unexpressed. And then when it is all expressed, even if Kensho is not realized, how bright and fresh you will become. Zazen in a dark hole with a lot of fog will bring you nothing and you will have wasted your time. To fill up with the energy of the heavens and earth, for that it is worth doing Zazen. There's a lot in this short paragraph. He, he talks here about um, getting, getting stuck in a dark hole. Guessing he means here, um, when we get, we get stuck in the dark hole of our preoccupations, when we we um, get get can't get past you could say can't get past our difficulties all we see is our um, are our limitations and our blocks and often when we're in this dark hole we're convinced 
that um, it is harder for us, this practice is harder for us than for everyone else. Everyone else is doing brilliantly and we're sitting here completely admired in our thoughts. If, if we, can, we can step back a little bit from, from this um, thinking process, that what, what comes out of the overall kind of theme or tenor of it is I, 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 me, 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 mine, mine, mine. But thankfully, um, Harada Roshi then sets out a way to, to get out, get ourselves out of this dark hole. He says, do your zazen for all of humanity, for all of those people who are not yet lightened, enlightened, sit firmly. In the, in the Metta Sutta, we, we talk about um, those born and to be born. All those people throughout space and time who are not yet enlightened, we sit for them. Do not breathe in a dark hole, but burst through the entire universe with your energy. Crash through the heavens with your feet at the roots of the trees, and then bring that life forth. Express that life. We, each of us is, is a wick that, that can be lit. A wick of, of life itself. There is nothing that needs to be forced or produced. There is nothing to think about and then bring up. Put everything into it. Do not leave anything undone and unexpressed. And then when it is all expressed, even if Kensho is not realized, how bright and fresh you will become. Here, um, he, he could be talking about um, Doksan. We often feel like um, we need to to bring something to and we can get into into forcing that or or um, trying to manufacture something so that we can produce it when we're in Doksan but that's that's not necessary we just come completely engaged as, as engaged as we can be in the practice just that, and then, then everything is in it. There's a story, a Persian story, which um, captures this everything. It's the story of a young man, handsome, well-educated, from a wealthy family, and uh, 
one day when he's at a, at a social occasion, he meets a beautiful young woman and immediately falls madly in love with her. And uh, being, being uh, uh, a highly controlled environment that he's living in, he can't um, come and meet her formally, though she's, he's sure from, from a look that she gave him that, that his feelings are, are reciprocated. Um, but he's, he's desperate to, to meet her so he can express his feelings for her. So he manages to, to write a love letter and get it smuggled to her by means of a servant. And in the letter he, he um, asks for a, a, a secret meeting. To his great joy, the, the maid brings back a letter from the woman saying, come to the small door at the back of our garden at midnight. If you convince me of your love, I will open it. At midnight, he knocks eagerly on the little door in the wall. Who is there? she asks through the lock. Oh, haven't you read my letters, sweet, sweet Jamila? I am Ali ben Kafir, son of a wealthy man, and I love you so much. Go away, was the answer. Very sadly, dejectedly, he went away, already beginning to frame other words in his mind uh, which might convince her of his love and his passion and, and, and prompt her to open the little door so that he goes back the next night and knocks again and again she asks who is there oh Jamila don't send me away for days I have thought only of you and dreamed only of you no daydreamed for I can't sleep your beauty haunts me I must see you I must Nice words, she said through the door, but I won't let you in. Go away. Desperate, he ran away, tears streaming from his face, his mind in a torment of questions. What could he say? What could he do? At last, almost without knowing it, he found himself back at her door, wildly throwing himself upon the threshold Forgetting his expensive clothes and his own great beauty, he pounded on the door. Who is there? Hardly knowing that it was himself who spoke, he cried, Oh, you! 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 And at that, the door flew open. We, we have to get to that place of, of forgetting the self. If we're doing a breath practice, it's, it's when 
we're, we're breathed by the breath. The breath fills the universe. Or in, in Shikantaza, when when we're just consumed by this, or to to be so engaged with the questioning of the Khan that there's nothing else, just move. Just what? Moo, moo, moo. text. He says if we if we get involved in our practice in the in this way where there's there's nothing forced or produced, nothing to think about or get bring up, but just we put everything into it, then Whether Kensho happens or not is is beside the point. Uh, our mind will have become fresh, bright. There's um, something that Vaclav Havel said about about hope, which applies here. Usually don't think of there being really any place for hope in, in, in Zen practice because hope implies um, expectation of something happening in the future. But when I read this, this sort of definition of hope from Vaclav Havel, um, I recognize that this is, is a kind of hope that, that does have its place in, uh, in Zen practice and Buddhism. He said, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something is worth doing no matter how it turns out. This is, this is the, the, the way to approach our practice. We just do it because in itself it's worthwhile. Doing it, we, we touch the, the brightness and clarity of our true mind. We embody that true mind.
to fill up with the energy of the heavens and the earth. For that it is worth doing Zazen. So 100% Zazen. Along the way, we, it's, it's really important that we, we recognize the habits of mind that arise in us that are detrimental to us, that go nowhere. We, we create our world with our thoughts. So it is up to us to um, see what, what, what thoughts are in the mind, to really be clear about what we might be telling ourselves if we're suffering. And craving is a big part of this suffering, which we're just coming to now. And this is the third part of Bodhidharma's entering through practice. Craving nothing. He says, this is Bodhidharma's text. The various sorts of longing and attachment that people experience in their unending, unending ignorance are regarded as craving. The wise awaken to the truth going with the principle rather than with conventional ideas. Peaceful at heart, with nothing to do, they change in accord with the seasons. All existence lacking substance, they desire nothing. They know that the goddesses of good and bad fortune always travel as a pair, and that the triple world where they have lived so long is like a burning house. Suffering inevitably comes with having a body. Who can find peace? If you understand this fully, you quit all thoughts of other states of being, no longer crave them. A sutra says, to crave is to suffer. To crave nothing is bliss. Thus we understand clearly that craving nothing is the true practice of the way. Because say the, the essence of, of, of our craving is we, we expect the world to adjust to us rather than um, imagining that we might have to adjust to the world. He mentions here um, the triple world where, we, where you have lived so long. The, the triple world um, is just a way of saying... Um, Every, all, all levels and, and types of unenlightened existence. It's, um, in Buddhist cosmology, there are the three realms of desire, which is this realm, form and no form, which are more um, rarefied realms. So it just means we've, we've um, lived in the in the realm of unex unlightened existence for so long mentions here also these the 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 two goddesses of good and bad fortune always traveling as a pair and um, there's a story about this later which we may get to today um, but this this notion of 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 good and bad fortune as a pair is, is one that is found um, beyond 
Asia beyond uh, Buddhism um, in medieval times there would often be a depiction of the wheel of fortune and it, w it would show a wheel like you might see in a fairground a, um, fixed um, to spin um, like a, like a up like a dartboard or whatever and there'll be people on one side because as, as the wheel turns they're they're rising up towards the top of the wheel but then those same people in the same places when the wheel gets far enough then they start to descend so the the rising and the descending are are um, happening on one wheel you can't you can't pull them apart it's the nature of the wheel um, if you're fixed on at one point on that wheel that um, after you've gone up 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 then you get to the apex and then go down the other side this is the nature of of samsara ups and downs it's the nature of sishin too we go through all kinds of ups and downs in in a single round often in Sushin. and the question is how can we work with that how can we find equanimity in the midst of the turnings of the wheel of fortune now turning to Haradaroshi's commentary from the birth of civilization or going back even further to the beginning of the earth all these millions of years everything has been left up to desires and insects inset instincts <laughs> not insects we didn't we didn't leave everything up to them <laughs> and in fact the, the our earth is four billion years old it's many many millions of years old we left everything up to desires and instincts liking and disliking wanting this and that using our bodies always for these desires acting with anger greed and hate yearning endlessly for something always something else always holding anger within or always complaining about what is going on Or rather, rather than saying um, anger and um, greed and, and hate, we could say um, attraction and repulsion, very basic reflex actions. Instinctual responses. Why are we so angry, so greedy, so ignorant? We do not even know, but there is no end to our lack of satisfaction. We're always wanting something else, something more. We're always thinking about what everybody else is doing and for what, we do not even know. Yet even not knowing, we continue doing it. Our complaining and our desiring continue to arise from that craving mind. Actually, there are theories now um, when this was written, 
2000, published 2000, um, about um, why we're so greedy and ignorant and, and angry, uh, coming out of, of evolutionary psychology. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that um, kind of on an existential level, level we know why we're the way we are. We, and certainly, um, we keep doing it. We keep we keep crafting our own suffering, even if we might ha may have some theories about about um, attraction and repulsion and denial and so forth. The first of the four noble truths taught by the Buddha is that we are always suffering. And why are we always suffering? Because we are always accumulating. A monk who arrives at the temple to enter the monastery has very few possessions, yet in a year he accumulates a truckload of stuff, and it is such pre precious stuff. Um, I didn't know that, that monks accumulated stuff, I guess they do, um, but of course it's probably much, what we accumulate in our houses is probably much more generally. And it is such precious stuff. We also accumulate in all of our senses, in our noses, taking in the smells of the kitchen, in the cold, wearing as many clothes as we can until we become huge lumps. Uh, so, so many clothes sometimes that the stick doesn't actually connect at all with the shoulder because there's so many layers in between. And that's here, whereas in, in Japan it really is cold. Monasteries often not heated at all, extremely drafty. My my teacher Bowden Roshi was at Sogenji where where um, Shoto Harada teaches, and he said it was like living in a garage, an unheated garage in in um, and this was in a snowy, cold place. We collect in our minds as well, not being satisfied with our state of mind, wanting to re-experience a past state of mind, or worrying that we are not fit for this path. Clean it all out. That is what this practice is for. Do a great cleaning of your mind. Um, this is probably, these are the most pernicious ones, not so much the, the, the um, physical things that we accumulate, though they can, they can be causing all kinds of suffering in their own right, but these ones that we collect in our minds are often the most stubborn. One way to understand us as in whatever practice we're doing is um, the, this purification process that it, um, brings with it to to keep turning our mind toward what what uh, Bodhidharma calls the principle is to to loosen the hold that all of the um, uh, things we cling to um, loosen the grip of these things on us. Those who have understood the truth, 
those wise people who know well how the mind and society and nature and the truth work. Those are wise people. In China, a lord asked a wise man, how can I make all of my people wise? Rather than suggesting various activities that the Lord might have his people do, the wise man simply answered, Have them be virtuous. By thinking of others first, that virtue will gladly, gradually, naturally, become a huge expression of a sincere heart. As this expands further, peace in all the country will reign. And the old Lord was happy with this teaching from the wise man. Um, virtue. Again, this is a way of of bringing ourselves into alignment with principle, as Bodhidharma would have it. Just coming up this Sunday, we're we're having our precept ceremony at the centre. Amatari Kujukai. And it is a it is a, a centrally important ceremony within our tradition, right? Because it is our expressing our willingness to put others first. And our practice is really incomplete without this aspiration and of course beyond the aspiration the putting it into practice as best we can people of the world want everything they see they crave it all yet they never find satisfaction with any of it one who has understood clearly the Buddha's teaching that nirvana exists in the extinguishing of the flames of greed, anger and delusion, what the Buddha realized in his deep enlightenment, has obtained the same wisdom and is, in called, is called an awakened one. She or he knows this true mind, empty and clear, containing nothing at all without one speck. Someone who truly experiences this mind will not need one thing, not one single thing. What are you looking up in the sky and asking for when from the origin it is all empty? If you need nothing, then you will naturally want to give away what you already have to someone else. Your enjoyment comes from giving your mind of the Dharma to everyone. Every time you come into contact with someone, you give it away. People who do this are not craving. They are eager to give. That is their pleasure. This, the, the, when this, this, we truly drop this self-other dichotomy, then giving is giving to oneself. This is the the um, the opposite of of craving.
after her uh, awakening experience, Byron Katie, who we were talking about yesterday, would just, if people asked her for things, she'd just give them away. Um, twice she gave away her wedding ring. Um, her, her husband went out patiently and <laughs> bought her another one. <laughs> I think the, sec the first time the person gave the ring back, but the second time they didn't. And so he, he, and, he and he said he, as long as he could, he would keep replacing the wedding rings. Well, there's the story of Ryokan, the um, Japanese monk poet, who um, a thief came uh, to his hut and um, there was nothing there for the thief to take. So Ryokan took off his robes and, just, and, and said to the thief, just so you don't go away empty-handed, here are my robes. Of course, the, the thief was, was shamed by this um, this generosity. It's a story of a of a Korean master. I think he may still be alive, who um, would do the same. If somebody came up to him asking him for something, he would just right there in public take his take all his robes off and give them to the person, being all he had in that moment. And his followers got very annoyed with this because. <coughs> The Korean robes are quite, quite nice and quite expensive, and they'd have to keep on replacing his robes. And of course, it was embarrassing that he was undressing in public as well. The mind of no worry, no anxiety. This is the difference between a truly ordained person and one who was ordained only in form. I'm talking about here about monks and nuns. To worry about your life and what it will bring you is for people of the world. If a monk thinks in that way, if he is wearing the robes of an ordained Buddhist, then he is still a person of the world and not a true monk. To be able to totally entrust, leaving everything up to the workings of the heavens. Only if you do true zazen will you be able to understand this state of mind. Because a monk, a, a monk or a nun is a homeless one. This is, this is the the essential kind of um, core of um, ordaining as a, as a monk. So it's 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 an expression of one's one's faith and a kind of a kind of training that we take we can take up. To, to test our, our kind of uh, faith in the workings of the heavens. It's, um, it's, it's a place to, to aspire to. When we can live without great concern for our own welfare, the food we need usually comes. In doing takahatsu, I have never had a single day of receiving no money or offering of food. If you are truly walking the path, living with only exactly what you need, and truly practicing, you will be able to stay alive and receive what you need. It is possible to go without eating for a full month, 
and even if you die sitting, it will be a fine way to go. It is, a tr is truly foolish the way everybody rushes around working for the money and the food and the possessions that they think they need. Just this... Um, saying, and I'm not sure who, who said this, um, about consumerism, he goes, um, buying something you don't need with money you don't have to impress someone you don't like. At one point during my training, I could not pass a koan and was packing up my things in the monastery ready to leave, giving up. At that time, I thought it should not have taken me or anyone else more than three years to reach Kensho. I remember my tears at the end of my first Rohatsu Seshin when I could not realize Kensho. Was something wrong with the way I was sitting in the Zendo? I would even go out and sit all night long, but still I could not break through. So I packed my things and went to the Roshi. I told him I was going to go and sit for as long as I possibly could alone. The Roshi asked, then what are you going to do? I said I would know then that I did not know at that moment, but when that time came I would know what I had to do. The Roshi did not say anything. I went to the Nara mountains, doing one sesshin after another on my own. I then went to different mountains in another area and did the same thing, sitting one sesshin after another. It was nearing the time of Rahatsu when a young man appeared in the mountains. Neither of us had seen anyone for a while and we were eager to, eager to talk. He asked me if I was practicing Zen and I said yes. The other young man had been doing the practice of chanting the Buddha's name, and he ex exclaimed, How lucky you are to be spending all of your time, your whole life, doing your practice. This from someone who was able to practice only a few days a week. His, his words hit me like a blow on the head. At that moment, all the burdens I had been carrying around fell away, and I knew that I had never left the Buddha's palm. I became suddenly light as if my body were weightless. I returned to Nara and found a letter from my previous training temple asking me to come there for Rohatsu. Um, this uh, image of, having, of never leaving the Buddha's palm, um, it comes from um, the story of monkey. Um, some of you may have been familiar with it. It, it was being turned into um, uh, a great uh, children's te television seri series. In fact, they think there's more than one. But um, Monkey is like this trickster figure who accompanies um, Tripitaka, um, Xuanzhe, to from China to India to to get the sutras. And he's like a sort of um, protector of um, Tripitaka. And they have, it's like this long, long saga of adventures, like a, like a sort of extended fairy tale. And um, Monkey gets up to all kinds of 
um, mischief various times. Uh, but but one, at one point, um, he's boasting to Tripitaka about how far he can jump. He's a kind of supernatural monkey with supernatural powers. And he's saying how he can, he can jump to the end of the universe in a single leap. And, um, and then he, he um, eventually he wants to, to show uh, Tripitaka his, his powers. So he makes this great leap and he thinks he's got to the end of the universe and um, at the end of the universe there are these um, pillars, um, large, um, enormous, round pillars. And so just to, to make his mark, he pees in the base of, of one of these pillars and then he leaps back to, to Tripitaka and, and tells him what happened and I'm not sure how it gets to this point, but at a certain point he realizes that the pillars that he was had uh, peed at the, against were the, the 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 Buddha's fingers. So he had leapt all that way to the end of the universe, but he was still in the Buddha's palm, the palm of the Buddha's hand, being held. Knowing the path would always open in front of me, I have never lost that confidence that I have never left the Buddha's palm at any time in any way. From that time, time on, Sanzen was never terrible again. Sanzen is the, the Rinzai name for Doksan. Sanzen was never terrible again. It can be it can be very painful going to Doksan again and again and again, wanting desperately to be able to find the answer and yet not having one. It's a it's a kind of agony, a kind, and, and one has to um, renounce this this need we have to know, to be in control, to be on top of things. But unless we do, unless we find trust in, in something bigger than our um, discriminating consciousness, then it will remain a very uh, painful process, a kind of torture. From that time on, San Zen was never ter terrible again. All of the koans were just my karma ripening and to be done going on and on. Since then the path has always been open to me. I could accept whatever came. If there was no food it would be okay to die sitting. This is the important point, to entrust completely, to live today with one's fullest energy, to have no anxiety deep within, to have no sense of having done this or that, leaving it all up to the natural way leaving it all up to heaven and earth.
leaving it all up to the universe. Each of us is a node of that great universe, not separate from it. There, there is only mind. We can, we can try and leap as far as we like, but actually we're still in the palm of the Buddha's hand. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www dot auckland zen dot org dot nz